Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today is going to be a fantastic episode because it's with a guy who's been on the show twice, but not since after maybe episode number 216. I'm talking about Stephen Kotler, who's one of the world's leading experts on peak performance. He's done neuroscience research at USC, UCLA, Stanford, Imperial College, all looking at extreme achievement. And he's very knowledgeable about this stuff. He's a crazy guy, a friend, and author of a brand new book that comes out exactly the same day that Fast This Way comes out. And so I am releasing this right in the middle of my own book launch because his book is worth your time to read. And you guys know it's my job to share really cool stuff with you and thousands of people try to get on the show. <laughs> and I'm really selective about who and what and when. And I'm just going to say straight up front, I got the advanced edition, you know, pre-publication and all that for The Art of Impossible. And Stevens has uh, been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, has written 13 books, and is just a genius at writing. I love his writing, and I love his deep research. Stephen, welcome to the show. David, it's great to be with you. I was so stoked when I saw your new book because your basic premise is that it's in our biology, that, that your biology is what drives extreme achievement, not just willpower. How did you come to this conclusion? The center of my work is flow. And flow, if you look at sort of like what, what is flow optimized, it's a huge suite of things. The motivation, productivity, grit creativity and learning, innovation, cooperation. It's this huge, so huge set of things. And since I study flow, I've had to study the full macroscopic, like all these different things and what's going on in each of them. And when you look at the big picture, and this is really developments that have happened in neuroscience and kind of performance psychology over the past 10 years, we're starting to see the big picture, right? And it became very, very clear. One, you know, the foundational premise of this book and of everything else you and I very much agree on this, is that peak performance is nothing more or less, I guess, than getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. And again, not a new idea, right? William James in like the very first psychological textbook ever written in 1901 says yeah. the most important thing in any education is to get your nervous system, meaning your brain, especially back then, to be your ally instead of your enemy, right? This is not a new idea. There's a hundred years of, of science saying, wow, this is, this is what it is. What we've seen in the past 10 years, though, is, wow, this is all a system. All these things that flow optimizes, they're actually part of one system. They're meant, to be, they're meant to be utilized together. They're meant to work together. And if you get everything working for you, you get farther faster, right? That's the whole point. All right. So then what is the art of impossible? I mean, you're saying well, get the, your nervous system in alignment? I, I, Okay. No, no. Okay. No. The, so the art of impossible. <laughs> the way the way I look at it, the, and and this is sort of when I say peak performance is a system, you can only optimize certain things. It, peak performance always sort of starts with motivation, which is, as you know, a psychological catch-all term for intrinsic and extrinsic drives, goals, and grit. That would be motive. So peak performance always starts with motivation. Gets you gets you into the game. Learning is what keeps you into the game. Creativity allows you to steer and flow allows you to turbo boost the results. And that's the entire, if you're really talking about what is the art of impossible, anytime you see the 
possibly come possible. You see huge goal achievement. You're seeing people capitalizing on these four biological systems and using them together in a very specific way. And the four being motivation, learning, creativity, and flow, kind of the, the structure mm-hmm. of the book. One of the things that I, I used to believe uh, when I was fat <laughs> uh, was, uh, well, I'm trying. I, I'm motivated to not feel this way and look this way, um, but I was unsuccessful. You know, I, I could lose 25 pounds. I gained 35 pounds you know, two months later, and it would just go back and forth. So I felt like I had motivation, but it wasn't working. Why was it not working? Okay, I don't... I don't know the ins and outs. Um, but I can tell you that, you know, when you talk about intrinsic drive, you're really talking about curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. Those five are our big five intrinsic motivators. We have a lot of others for sure, but, and those, but those five are linked. They're all built on each other, right? Curiosity is a little bit of dopamine and a little bit of norepinephrine passion, which is basically the intersection of multiple curiosities, curiosities designed and built into passion, is way more dopamine and norepinephrine. Purpose, which is just our passion attached to cause greater than ourselves, is norepinephrine dopamine plus a couple extra neurochemicals for more motivational boost. Once you have a purpose, you need the autonomy, the freedom to pursue your purpose, and you need mastery, you need the skills to pursue that purpose. And if you have all five of those, you don't tend to get knocked off course. But on their own, they're usually not enough, which is one of the things you see in, in really top performers. In the same way that, you know, if you've got an athlete, they're going to do everything they possibly can for physical energy, right? You also want to do everything you possibly can for mental energy and motivation is those five things. I also, there's, you know, once you have those five things, there's also proper levels of goal setting. The science shows three levels of goal setting are necessary. And followed by six different layers of grit skills, which is what would allow you to sustain that diet when the motivation is gone. So I don't know where you went off. Like maybe you didn't line up your intrinsic motivators properly. Maybe you had, didn't set the right levels of goals. Maybe you didn't have, have all six levels of grit trained up at one time um, and, and working together in that sequence. So I don't know, you know the ins and outs of the exact thing, sure. but I would tell you, that my guess is that the fault lies somewhere in that matrix, um, in that it, motivation. It felt trial. like, you know, you, you have this motivation and you, you, in the morning, like, okay, today I'm not oh. going to eat the cookies they put in the conference room table in the afternoon, right? Mm. But then you're sitting there and, and you know, well, eventually so, and, like, God yeah, damn it, why and, did I eat and, that? And, and that one, I mean, that's where, th- that's, a, you know, there's, there is Roy Baumeister's work on willpower, right? Um, mm-hmm. which is very different than motivation, but it's a thin slice of persistence. Yes. And, and Roy got sort of pillared for linking willpower, t- totally tying it to glucose levels, right? Um, and so that was maybe not the right thing to do, but he was definitely right on the fact that willpower declines over the course of a day unless you can reset it. He argued that yeah. you can reset it with glucose. It really seems like the only way to reset willpower, certainly you need like, Good, you need to fill up the tank again, so you're going to need food and water. But it, it seems like state change, getting the brain out of beta and into alpha for maybe it's a nap, maybe it's a long walk, maybe it's a workout. You know what I mean? There's a lot of different ways, but it seems like if you want to reset willpower, you not just you have to tank up the energy, but you also have to shift state. That seems to be yeah. where, the, where the research is pointing. 
And the willpower declines over time. So you want to schedule the cookie meeting for early morning when you have more willpower and then try to skip the cookie meeting in the, in the mid-afternoon. That might be a geographical cure. That I like that idea. And I think he was probably wrong about glucose levels, but he was using glucose levels as a marker of mitochondrial function because they can run on other things like right. amino acids or on ketones. So basically, if you have enough energy, and there's no doubt in my mind, like if you're lagging, and I will admit when I was writing um, fast this way, I do most of my writing late at night, and you shouldn't even eat anything late at night. But on occasion, I'm like, you know what? I'm flagging. I'm going to take a certain kind of sugar, D-ribose, uh, which does raise insulin, but it's one that also makes ATP very effectively. I'll put three scoops of that in my decaf bulletproof, and I've got my energy back, right? And then that does affect motivation and willpower, oh, right? Oh, for and sure. And mental clarity. Yeah, I, I, I always want to say, I'm like, people, if you really like the greatest biohack in the world is a glass of water often. Right. I mean, it's the only thing that I know of where you actually get smarter almost while you're drinking it. Right. And you could feel that happening in your brain. Yep. It's uh, it's important. And I would say add a pinch of salt to that and you'll get an additional boost. Right. Yeah. A lot of people are drinking so much water that their their electrolytes are off. And then it all comes down to that cellular stuff. So so motivation, you're saying in your book, when you you go into decoding it, there's a bunch of neurochemicals, but it's also raw energy is a big part of it. But you also well, something, so, go ahead. Oh, what I was, so here, I mean, this is what I think of when I think of motivation. As you know, performance, we don't have a lot of levers to work with. There's not a whole lot, right? If you're really interested in, in sort of any given situation, you have basically two things. You have your attention. What are you going to focus on? What are you going to ignore? And the action required by whatever it is that you're doing. Now, usually the action like that skill, like you can get better and better at that over time and it's going to require less energy, but that's all usually a long period. And mm -hmm. you want faster results. Attention is really the only thing you can work with, right? If you put your attention and you do the same action over and over again, you get a habit and that allows you to perform the action without having to think about it. That's pretty much like, that's your suite of kind of foundational tools. The big deal about motivation is it gives you focus for free. That's the, that's what's such an important thing about motivation is you don't have to work so hard to pay attention to the thing you're paying attention to. And we know brains, 2% of your body mass, 25% of your energy, and that's at rest. You're not even paying attention to this stuff. So it's a big performance level. You also mentioned purpose, which is underlying motivation. So let me ask you this. What's your purpose? I've heard it has always been the same. Like it really hasn't changed since even our early interviews. I'm, I'm here to, you know, write books that, that, that impact the world. Mostly I'm just here to write books because I love writing books. Um, <laughs> I, I want to, you know, I've always been about trying to kind of decode the neurobiology of flow and, and use that to, you know, help people level up their game. And I've always been about making the world a better place for plants, animals, and ecosystems, right? Empathy for all. Um, is, is the, and those have always been the things that sort of drive me purpose-wise. It, it's interesting. I, I hear from so many people, like, I don't know how to find my purpose, like, like why I'm here. And I, I, there, a lot of what I wrote in Game Changers was around that. I asked, you know, 500 people. In fact, I think you're in there. Uh, and so, and one of the answers are I two think of I them, am. Probably. Yeah, I think I, yeah. I think I am in Game Changers. And I did sort of the scientific analysis of answers of, of all this. Uh, but I still hear this a lot, especially from people under 30. 
like, you know what? I, I'm finding like I have this motivation. I, I, I know there's something. Do you have any hacks for helping yeah, people connect so, with their purpose? So one, uh, passionrecipe.com. The beginning of the book, right, is a um, plan. And it's a, it, it's, this is not overnight. This is not an overnight hack. And the reason you want to really, the, the passion recipe will take you a couple, two to three months to go through. And it will teach you how to turn curiosity into passion and passion into purpose. And the reason, two things that are pointing out, you don't rush through it, right? Don't, don't try to get there too quickly because you do not want to be like two years into devoting yourself to your purpose to only discover it's a phase, right? Right. <laughs> that is massively demotivating, obviously. And the other thing that I always tell people, and I think this is, this is your younger than 30 year old friends who are coming to you and saying they're having this trouble. We make a bad mistake when we think about passion. We think how passion is going to feel. If I say, give me an example of athletic passion of most people, they're going to talk to me about like LeBron James going in for a windmill dunk right in the finals. That is passion, but that you are looking at late stage passion. That is not <laughs> what early stage passion looks like. Early stage passion is a little kid in a driveway trying to get a basketball to fall through a hoop. That's what early stage passion looks like. And that's what it feels like on the inside, right? The system is designed to build curiosity into passion and passion into purpose. And it doesn't, it's not designed to work super fast. And it doesn't, you don't get the full feeling of, oh my God, I'm, you have to live inside of that passion for a long time before it starts feeling and looking like that. So I think often <coughs> the hack is be more patient with yourself. If you look right, I mean, one is understand that this is not so sometimes in peak performance, and I'm sure you know this as well, you've got to go slow to go fast. Learning to turn curiosity into passion, passion into purpose. This is one of those places where you've got to go slow because once you get it right, these are three huge intrinsic motivators. And if they're pointed in the same direction, it unlocks a tremendous amount. It, it seems like it can also shift over time. I mean, there was a, a time in the, the first half of my career yeah. where like building the internet, making it scale and grow and able to do what I, I believed was possible was the most important thing. And I, I poured everything I had into it and I became, you know, a world-class expert on that. And, and it was, you know, my thing. And, and one day I'm like, I'm done. Like, like it, it's, it's there. And, you know, the, everything is incremental on top of that. Like I'm, I got to do something else. But that whole time I'd been building up my curiosity around hacking my own biology. And, and you know, at a certain point, it's like, this is my passion. This is what I'm going to do. Right. So I, I, I feel like it, it can change over time, but the entire oh, time I, I was building the internet, I was still curious and I was building my skill set around biohacking before it had the name. Right? David, I, I mean, I spent the first 12 years of my career essentially trying to be the best long-form journalist in the history of the world, right? I mean, I was writing about neuroscience. I was writing about all the same questions I'm still writing about, but I was my main passion was trying to be the best. And then long-form journalism as an art form, the internet happened and it went away. And yeah. you know what I mean? Like the thing I, and it, that's a really weird spot to find yourself in, right? Where the thing you're trying to be best at in the world that you've devoted your entire life to, you wake up one day and it's gone. That's yeah. a weird one, right? That ha and that happens to people also. But again, right, like you, all the things that I was actually studying along the way, 
sort of, you know, became where I went to next. And that's how the process is designed to work also, right? That's sort of how the biology works. And that's how kind of having a associative pattern recognition system for a brain works. That's how we grow anyways. Uh, I I really like what you're saying there, Stephen. Uh, there's there, there's so much going on that that's that's not known. Like I, I would argue that long form journalism isn't really gone, and you are one of the best writers I know. I, I mean, you you write books that are just abundantly readable. See, what I did there because you wrote abundance. Yeah, uh, I but, did. Uh, that, was, that was totally cute. <laughs> you know what? You know, right you, you, David, you make me you make me feel bulletproof. I, I like I I don't know why. I just talk to you. <laughs> nice, right back at me. But uh, but seriously, it feels like in in a world of you know Instagram quotes and and things like that that there's a desire for the long form journalism, but it's it's, you know, 5% of what it used to be, which means it has to be epic for people to want to invest, you know, 20 minutes to read an article. But I read your stuff because it's good, right? Uh, so I, I, also, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I don't think it's dead. I mean, it was dead as a viable way to make a, a like a yeah. real living. You, you know what I mean? Like I when, when during the dot-com crash, I took a 300% overnight pay cut. Um, yeah, you know what I mean? Like that, yeah. And so did everybody, you know what I mean? So did everybody else. It wasn't just me, but, uh, that was, uh, so it was, and I'm sure that's coming back now, right? Radio yeah. went away when television happened and then it came back as it's, you know, as its own thing. And, uh, and quality always persists. If you're, if you really, if craft is, if your if your devotion to craft is there, that will it, sooner or later, it's going to rise to the top. It it is going to rise to the top. It reminds me of Ryan Holiday's perennial seller, uh, his book about that. Have, have you come across that? Mm-mm. But uh, I know that, that's you, a that's you, a book worth reading too. It, it's okay. it's what goes into writing a world class book, like the amount of passion oh. and effort. You you should read. Like anyone listening to this, you guys, if you want to be like the best at creating something, this explains the the guts that goes into it better than any book I've I've come across. Um, and Ryan's another really quality writer um, who's out there. And and as you well know, Stephen, there's... And a good dude. And a good dude, yeah. I mean, and there's like hundreds of thousands of authors. Anyone can you know, publish a Kindle book, you know, with a picture of their foot on it <laughs> and be top of whatever thing. So so the... the Podiatry. I'm number one in podiatry. Uh, there you go, right? And And there's like, there's a crazy amount of noise out there, but it does mean that quality shines even more when there's so much noise because we just get used to this level of kind of just low level stuff. So one thing that I find, this is totally off topic about nothing, but I find this interesting because it's sort of on this topic. A lot of the stuff that allowed the foot book to rise to the top sort of, <laughs> um, is that you could sort of like on the marketing end, you could, you could do SEO, you could do keyword stuff, you could do whatever, but what people don't sort of get in that game on, on, who are not devoted to quality is that the AIs, that are driving the search engines are now smart enough to read whole books and watch whole movies. And you can no longer write where the era where you can sort of sneak past the system is coming to a close. And now more than ever, which I love, right? I love yeah. the fact that the people who are really like fired up about doing the research and putting in the craft work to, to learn how to, whatever it is, if you're making a book or a movie or TV, I don't care what it is. Like I care that you're deeply passionate about it and you put everything you possibly can into it. And I think the AI is going to start finding that. And and that's why I think what you're writing about here matters even more now, uh, because 
there's a, a mindset that was taught a lot over the last 10 years that sort of, you know, find, find some suckers, live on a beach, you know, work, you know, one day a week and, you know, kind of just, just be a little bit parasitic, you know, just, just get people to buy. It doesn't really matter what they buy. And I've always been repelled by that uh, because just my purpose and my, my passion is, it's not about that. Like I, I want it to be the world's best. I want it to be more than worth the time it takes to read it. But it, it requires that deep level of, of passion and motivation, which are the ingredients you're talking about in, the, um, in your book, The Art of Impossible. I keep wanting to call it The Art of the Impossible. And By the way, like so, does ev- so does everybody. So does, I had no idea it was missing a the. Everybody is having the same problem. You're not alone. Um, one of two things is clear. Either I don't know how to speak the English language or all of you don't know how to speak the English language. It, I, don't, I don't know which <laughs> one it is. It, it's actually a catchy title, The Art of Impossible, because you're not saying the impossible. It's just like impossible. But for some reason, every time I, I'm like, am I going to say it right? And then I question myself. So maybe I need to work on my passion even more. <laughs> you, you talk in the book about something called the full intrinsic stack. What is a full intrinsic stack? We were, it's what we were just talking about. It's, it's curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. It's getting that stack totally getting all of those motivators lined up, pointed in the same direction. What is autonomy and the way you talk about it? It's an interesting word. Autonomy is, uh, so it's interesting because if you go into the psychological literature, it's relatively a new term. We called it freedom, right? Like Mm -hmm. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi wrote a lot about this stuff. And a lot of people did back in the seventies and the eighties and they just called it freedom. But it's literally, we are, we are hardwired to we want to steer our own life, right? Like that we are an organism who believes we have the best chance of success if we're running the show for ourselves, in a sense. And thus, um, it's a big driver. And what's interesting is we're starting to, you know, we've known almost since the 70s or 80s that autonomy was a big motivator. What we didn't realize, autonomy, uh, what we now know is that um, we always want it, but once you have a purpose, once that your curiosity, passion, purpose is set, then is autonomy becomes deadly effective. Then it becomes really you, you most. What's interesting is, and there hasn't this, it's hard to study, but so there hasn't been direct studies on this, but there's been good case studies and examples to learn from about how much autonomy you actually need, right? To like tr- how much autonomy do you really need to be in control of your life? Because a lot of us work for somebody else right so we can't yep. control all our time or we have spouses or right like girlfriends boyfriends we have other people right so the question is to really tap this motivator how much time do you really need the first example you know what did we learn from google with their 20 percent time is that 50 percent of google's products have come out of 20 percent time giving engineers if you're engineer right. at google you right you can spend 20 percent of your time Turns out Google didn't come up with the idea. They borrowed it from 3M, who's been doing 15% time since, you know, the 70s. And again, huge, huge uptick. Um, but you don't even need that much. And this is a lesson learned from Patagonia. Patagonia has, is always kind of tops list, best place to work in America. Yeah. And why? If you go into the research, the data, employee autonomy is one of the big ones. But if, how much autonomy do you really get if you work at Patagonia? They allow you to make your own schedule and they have a rule um, at the uh, Patagonia headquarters is right on the Pacific. It's an Oxnard and the 
if it's the surface up outside, you can quit, stop whatever you're doing and go surfing. It's a rule that Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia calls, let my people go surfing. So this is important. Why does making your own schedule and the ability to go surfing whenever you want that much autonomy is enough to tap into this? Why would that possibly work? And it's what's underneath that. You have to think about when you make your own schedule, you gain two things. One, gain the ability to control your sleep. So you can get seven, eight hours yeah. of sleep a night because you can't, as you know, peak performance is essentially impossible over time without seven, eight hours of sleep a night. That's just, we're just hard. I might say that six way. and a half, but. And I think everybody's a little different in that. You know what I mean? But the re- yeah. the research pretty much says seven to eight is the human average. Um, yep. You may not be quite human. Um, it's hard to well, tell at that. this point. Right? <laughs> but the other thing you get with your schedule is, of course, you get to work in accordance with your circadian rhythms, which is the other yes. huge thing, right? I'm an extreme lark. You want me at my best? Find me at 4 a.m. You're a night owl. I want you at your best. I got to find you at five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's when you're starting to wake up and come online, right? And you want you need to be able to make your own schedule so you can get enough sleep at night and work in accordance with your biorhythms, your circadian rhythms. And why does surfing matter? Two reasons. One, because exercise, regular exercise is foundational to peak performance because it's foundational regulating your nervous system and keeping anxiety levels down. And anxiety is such a block on peak performance. And surfing for a lot of different reasons that we could go into if you wanted is packed with flow triggers. So this gives you the autonomy to chase flow whenever you want, keep your nervous system calm down, follow your natural biorhythms and get enough sleep at night. And the autonomy, that's the foundation. That's sort of like a, a pretty good recipe just for basic peak performance. And that's that much autonomy is enough to start triggering this motivator. And that turns out to be not a whole lot of autonomy. That's the other thing about some of these things is you don't need as much of it as you might think you do to start getting the results you want. So a little bit of autonomy. It seems like it's that way even with neurotransmitters. People are like, oh, serotonin, good. <laughs> excessive serotonin is exceptionally toxic. And no yeah, serotonin and is a bad ex- place to be. And <laughs> excessive, excessive, little bit of dopamine, good. A lot of dopamine, schizophrenia, right? Yep. Like exactly. mania or schizophrenia, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, I mean, it's, I don't know why this is difficult for people. Um, everything in the body is a spectrum, right? Anger, little art, homicidally murderous, same emotion, flow, microflow to macro flow, introversion, extrovert. We're built on spectrums, right? I often think of like all of a human being may actually be is like an intersection of about 30 or 40 of these spectrums, which means that we're actually just a perspective, right? You're like a point, an intersection of all these things, but it's one point and it's a perspective that's of course not fixed over time, but never mind. We're not gonna, we're not gonna go there. <laughs> we're gonna leave the metaphysics out of this. Yeah, there we go. You can always get metaphysical. And and there's some of the flow is metaphysical. So, you know, it's it's worth just noting that that if if we ignore the spiritual side, some of this stuff doesn't work as well. Because flow states can feel spiritual, right? They absolutely can feel spirit. I mean, people like, you know, for, until Abraham Maslow came along, uh, we thought, William James thought flow was a mystical experience, not meaning it had mystical properties, but it was found predominantly in spiritual and religious traditions. It was only in the, I want to say it was the 50s, late 50s, Maslow was doing a giant study on uh, high achievement. And when he says high achievement, he doesn't just mean success. He really means like, are you a good, kind person? 
those yeah. kinds of things, right? And he, he, was, he had this huge study group and they, he found that all high achievers used flow, had flow at the center of their, whatever they were doing, they were trying, they were trying to drive themselves into flow and they were using that for high achievement and they were all atheists. Everybody in his study group was an agnostic or an atheist. It was like Eleanor wow. Roosevelt and Albert Einstein. And like, what are the odds of it? But suddenly he was like, oh, wait a minute. That's where, why we, we stopped calling a mystical experience. That's where the term peak experience came from. He I wanted to that. find, right? He wanted to find a, a non-spiritual, neutral term, basically, to describe what was going on. And it was only High came along and renamed peak experiences flow. Um, we now know peak experiences are sort of a spectrum, which flow part of them. Um, but it was it, it was interesting. It's cool that you're mentioning Maslow. Uh, Dr. Uh, Scott Barry Kaufman was just on. And yeah, Scott's a good you know, friend. He, he, he works with us at the Flow Research Collective. Oh, he, he does? He, okay, good. Yeah, so you, you know of his work. I was yeah, blown I away Scott. and he said, oh yeah, Maslow died before he mentioned that transcendence was the final thing on the hierarchy of needs. It's like that makes so much sense. Like that that was that was a, a cool thing yeah. that I hadn't heard yeah, of. Yeah, and I, yeah. I I love Scott's work uh on the idea of the because I always if you look at Maslow's pyramid, it's right, but only up to a point. And it was, I love the fact that Scott came along and was like, hey, well, even Maslow didn't really think it was a strict literal pyramid, but you know, it shows up that Maslow wasn't wrong. I mean, it's one of the foundational things we know about motivation is you have to have some level of safety and security, extrinsic motivation before you can start doing the intrinsic stuff, the curiosity, passion, purpose. If you're still like, where's my rent and my next meal coming from? You have too much anxiety in the system to even begin to have a conversation about the other stuff. You've got to solve those problems first. That And that in and of itself can be motivating, but these are extrinsic motivators, not intrinsic, right? Yeah. They, cool. I mean, what and what the research shows, and this is Daniel Kahneman's work, um, is that extrinsic motivations, motivators are perfect until you make enough to cover your basic needs and have a little left over. In America, yeah. in his research, right, it's $75,000 a year. This was about exactly. eight, 10 years ago. But that's where the line is, right? About mm -hmm. $75,000 a year. And after that, if you want better productivity, better performance, you can no longer rely on extrinsic motivators. Giving somebody who's making $75,000 a year way more money doesn't get you they'll be happy about it. They'll feel motivated. But if your real goal is performance benefits or productivity benefits, you're not going to get it. Once you, once you're at that level, you need, you want to work on work that you're curious about work that you're passionate about work. That's aligned with your values and your strengths and your purpose work where you have the freedom to pursue the work in the way you want to and work where you have the opportunity to master skills. That's what the research consistently shows. Uh, I love that. And that, that number Sounds high. It was eight to ten years ago. It's probably a bit higher. I think that was household income too, not not individual. Uh, yeah, I think it was it was household. It was yeah. household income. Yeah. You're right. Uh, and it's uh, it it's really important to just understand it's all right if you're still working on the extrinsic stuff and you're getting to that level. I mean, I, I remember in my career the first time I hit that level, and it was like, wow, this is great. I, I actually have something left at the end of the month. Like that that feels really good. Uh, and it it took no, and, and, years to yeah, get there. And it, yeah. It took a really, I, yeah, I, I took a very long time for me to get there. I was probably 28 or 29 before I actually kind of started really reliably getting to that threshold because it was hard to make a living as a writer when I was, you know, in, yeah. in my early 20s. And uh, it took a really long time and it felt like, in, you know, I, I, The Art of Impossible, it's a book about how do you, it's a book written 
because I spent my career studying people who have accomplished what I call capital I impossible, right? That which has never been done, but it's meant to be utilized by anybody who's interested in what I call small I impossible. Small I impossible is that which we believe is impossible for us. And I always, the example I give in the book is when I was growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, I wanted to be a writer. Cleveland, Ohio in the seventies, when I was growing up was a blue collar steel mill town. I didn't know <laughs> writers. I didn't know anybody who wanted to be, who wanted, you know what I mean? There was, and so what I mean, it was a small eye impossible because there's no clear path between point A, where I was and where I wanted to go, point B, where I wanted to go. Statistically, bad odds of success. What is another small eye impossible? Learning how to get paid for what you love, mm-hmm. which is what we've been talking about. Rising out of poverty, overcoming trauma, becoming world-class at anything you do. These are all small eye impossibles. They are things that are outside of our expectations for what we think we can achieve. Um, the whole point of the book is, of course, we can achieve far more than, than, than we believe. But I, I bring that up because I always think that the first small lie impossible that most people figure out is how to get a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a first kiss. Like that's often, <laughs> right? I mean, remember yeah. when you were 12, 13 years old, like trying to solve that puzzle? You have no idea how to solve that puzzle. It's, it's impossible. And the same thing is, I, and I think for, for many, many, a great many people, that's the, the first small lie impossible is how the hell do I get paid doing what I love and actually, you know, make an okay living at this. And it's interesting because it's also, this is not exactly in the art of impossible, but in the Harvard development project, one of the things that, that came out of it, uh, George Valiant writes about this in his book, Aging Well. Uh, if you haven't sort of figured out how to get paid for what you love or align your intrinsic motivators with what you do in a living by around the time you're 40 years old, you have a very, very, very difficult time sustaining life satisfaction and well-being beyond that. It's one of those, like, it's sort of a deal breaker in adult development. It, you, there's a line, and I don't know why it's at 40. The line at 50 is you have to forgive those people who have done you wrong, or it's very hard to have a, like a... a creative, fruitful, older age. It's really weird, but there are these thresholds in adult development that if you haven't solved this puzzle by X, well-being and life satisfaction really suffer afterwards. And if, if someone's right on the cusp and you haven't done it, like you, you got to do it anyway. But those tie to the Ericksonian stages of adult development and, and all of that. What we don't know is now that we have the era of radical life extension, I'm going to live to at least 180. Yeah, no, I know. Can we stretch I know. those out? I know. Or, or, I know. Are there like six more levels? What, I mean, and, you know, and I often wonder, right, because there's all these, who knew that dementia was what was waiting for us on the other side of cancer, right? As like, when as we push into our 80s and our 90s, brain diseases? I mean, we just did, we just solve the heart diseases and the cancers and now I've got brain diseases and we know there's gotta be, there's probably something waiting for us at hundred, 110, 120, right? As Peter Diamandis and his cohorts go keep pushing that out farther and farther. And you asked the other question. I've been asking Peter this same thing. We've been talking about it. I'm like, are, do, is there, are there more emotional development stages as we live longer and longer? You're asking really good questions or. What about emotional set points, right? These are set up in like things that are set up in early childhood experience and they are supposed to be like personality traits. You can change personality traits, but they're, they're hackable. But yeah, but it takes like five to 10 years of real work to really reorganize one of those at a foundational level. So the, and, but do those things start to change? Like 
when lifespan gets out to be 120, 130. Those are really weird questions that you know we haven't answered because we haven't really lived that long. I guess you could try to solve it by studying certain animal. I mean, do turtles' personalities change over time? <laughs> do whales? And maybe whales would be a good model. A turtle personalities. I've had a couple turtles as a kid. I they never really displayed that much personality. <laughs> I know. They're like I know lettuce. I, oh. <laughs> I, I know. I know. I've, I, I've hung out with turtles. They're wonderful, but I know. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD plus. It's what I use. Talk to me about the habit of ferocity. What yeah, is that? so so the the motivation. If you can get all the motivation stuff lined up, meaning you've got your intrinsic motivators lined up, you've got your three tiers of goal setting properly lined, and you've sort of trained up all your grit skills. This is a trait that I noticed over and over and over again in um, really in, in anybody who 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 accomplished something that you would call impossible, right? Like that which has never been done before. But it also seems to be just foundational and high achievers. And if all this stuff is lined up, what a habit of ferocity tends to be what you develop. And I define it as the ability to automatically and instinctively lean into a challenge. You lean into a challenge before you even know you've leaned in. And I'll give you um, an example in a weird way. So uh, my best friend, Michael Warden, ran track in high school. He had this really weird track coach who... Uh, had this idea that whenever the team encountered a hill, they should really focus on form. So tight arms, high kicks, not try to speed up, not try to do anything, just focus on form. Well, you know what happens if you focus on form. Eventually, your form tightens up and higher kicks, you'll end up going faster. So what happens with most runners is when they encounter a hill, because the body is a homeostatic organism, people will slow down right? They don't want to burn more energy. They're going to slow down to their same level. Elite runners will train 
to maintain the same pace in the face of a hill. This track team that my friend was running for, because they were focused on their form whenever they encountered a hill, pretty soon they were sprinting up hills. And this was a huge advantage. And of course, in the beginning, it sucks. But after a little while, they just got used to it. It was the habit of ferocity, right? Now, that's the habit of ferocity applied to running. The habit of ferocity is that same idea applied to everything you do. And what's the big deal? I'll give you a simple example. When most people encounter in business, right? I've been in business 30 years. I have about five problems a day, let's say on average. And I think that's kind of an average. They're not big problems, but they're problems. When most people encounter a problem, they will dither around for a little while. They'll sort of pull their hair out to be like, oh, I got a side. I don't want to solve this. I don't, you know, I don't want to lean. Peak performers automatic. The problem comes up. They know they're going to end up solving it. So they immediately lean in. Now say, what is this saving you? Five minutes a problem and you're doing five problems a day. It's 25 minutes a day that you're saving. But that 25 minutes a day adds up to three and a half weeks a year that you end up saving. So one of the reasons peak performers are always appear to be so far ahead of the competition is things like this, because they've got the compound interest of this habit of ferocity. It's not a big deal. It's a lean in instinct. But when a challenge shows up, they don't dither around. They instinctively lean in. And you often, you've had this experience because you have this habit. So you know how you get woken up at two o'clock in the morning where your brain is suddenly processing all the stuff you did all day and all the like high risk, big decisions you made all day without even thinking about it. And then they come and find you at two o'clock in the morning and sort of wake you up. You get that norepinephrine surge. You're like, oh my God, what did I do? It's your brain never going, happens. hey, you never happens, of course. No, I, no, really, it doesn't. I, it doesn't happen to me. Oh, you, oh, you don't get I'm woken at, up in the, oh, that doesn't I'm happen I'm at to peace you? with what I do, never. Oh, and this, I mean, it's, I'm at peace with what I do as well too, but sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I made all those decisions today, wow. And it just, that's what I mean by it. Interesting, um, okay. A lot of people get that. I, I just, I, my, yeah, I've worked you, on my sleep enough that. Oh, you've worked on your sleep enough? That still happens to me, even with every, okay. everything I do. It doesn't happen a lot, but it'll definitely happen to me. But I, so the habit of ferocity is, is this sort of uh, the automization of the lean in instinct, sort of how I think about it. Okay. I, so that, that's ferocity. Um, you always choose descriptive words, which is you know part of being a good writer. So that ferocity, it, it's lean in, but there's something in there that, that also isn't like lean in to the point of self-destruction. And I think you no. capture that in, in the rest of the words and some of the, the lean in stuff like Shell Sandberg stuff. And I have lots of respect for Shell Sandberg. But, you know, you can lean into the exclusion of other things that are part of the art of impossible, right? So, you know, it's, it's balancing it out just like with those neurotransmitters. You don't want too much. You don't want too little. But it's the habit of always doing it, okay? I, yeah, I like that I, you know, a lot. I, what I think you gain with that, you know, I, there's a really not. So over the past couple of years, I've written four books, launched four books, launched a company moved my family, built a house and moved my family and, you know, blah, blah, a couple other things of that ilk. If you would have gone back 15 years ago, if I would have accomplished one of those things in a year or two years or five years, that would have been, oh my God, how did I, like, that was a lot of work. I'm so proud of that. And now it's four or five in one year. And now that's the new habit. That's where you end up right. with at this. And right. That's the whole point is you end up getting to a point where, where you're living a life where you're constantly exceeding your own expectations for what you thought was possible. Uh, I, 
I see that in my own life. I'm just the, the speed of change. You get used to it. You, you up level and then you work on that for a little while. Then you up level and it becomes easier to start more than one company at a time and you know, to launch more than one thing at a time. And part of that is mastery. Uh, and part of that is, you know, having the right support structures and really a lot of the, the flow stuff. I know a group of people who do that because they're running from failure and like they're miserable all the time. And then, and I was one of those when I was younger. And now though, there's, I don't want to say effortless because I know it's work, but it doesn't feel like a heavy lift in order to do it. Even though when I look back, like, oh my God, like, how could that not be a heavy lift? Where, where does that, it's not a heavy lift anymore. Where does that come from? Well, predominantly it, that not, now you're really getting it, I think, into the territory of flow, right? Flow, optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. One of the qualities of a flow state is this quality of effortless effort, right? That's, you know, um, it's, it's bottom-up attention is really what it is instead of top-down attention. So it's happening automatically and you're getting, you know, effortless effort. In fact, one of the new physiological, this is interesting, one of the new physiological correlates that, that's shown up a lot with flow, um, probably more work needs to be done, but your frowning muscles appear to be paralyzed in flow. Smile muscles are hypoactive and frowning muscles tend to be paralyzed. And it's not that you can't be unhappy in flow. You actually can't be unhappy in flow. That's besides the point. But frowning correlates to work. When we're frowning, when we have that downturn, it's the brain is perceiving effort. And because flow is effortless effort, it appears that your frowning muscles are somewhat paralyzed in flow. Um, there's, we, I think we need more research on that, but it showed up in a couple of really interesting studies, um, that came out of the Karolinska Institute. Well, that's definitely a, a good school. My wife went to school there and I hear it all the time. What a good school it is. So it must be, Either that she just is really happy is a, she went there. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a really good school. There was a, you know, a flow research sort of left America, uh, for a while in around 2000 and went to Europe and it, there were a bunch of reasons for it. But a lot of it went over to the Carolins Institute. There are like four or five really talented flow scientists. Mm -hmm. There psychologists and neuroscientists there. Plus, they've got physicists. You've got physicists and the Swedish bikini team. There's nothing wrong with that. So. I'm going to keep my comments to myself. I'm just going to let you go out <laughs> and hang yourself on that particular. Yeah. Hey, I just like to say I married the captain of the Swedish bikini team, and I'm good. Ooh. Now. See, I just rescued myself. The habit of ferocity. Smart. The habit of ferocity. <laughs> See what you get? Harder and possible, people. Harder and possible. <laughs> Something else in your book uh, that I, I really appreciated. You talk about ten. Or you talk about five not so easy steps for learning almost anything. And you're yeah. straight up like they're not so easy, which they're really is not a bit so relaxing. Easy. Yeah. What's the really first one so of those five? Um. Little backstory on this process. Almost okay. everything in the entire book is as research-based as possible, meaning as like if I go all the way back to neuroscience. And this is one of the, this is, this is why I'm calling the book The Art of Impossible, not The Science of Impossible. Almost everything else in the book is science, but um, I think life itself is an art, but that's besides the point. But this is, this is something, this is literally a system I was a journalist for a very long time. I worked for over a hundred different publications. I had to be an expert to write about anything, right? This was especially back in the day when magazines had fact checkers. And if I wanted to get paid, yeah. I had to get it right. And the fact checkers, the, you have to understand, they were assassins, 
Like they they live. They're merciless. I, all my oh, books are fact checked. Yeah, terrible, <laughs> awful, awful experience. I mean, it's wonderful and thank God, but awful experience, right? So you know, it's been it and and you know, especially when like they would love to go to my editors and like be like, yeah, Cutler got it wrong and this, this, and this. And so like I, you had to be really, really, really right. But um, and I had to I had to learn subjects very, very quickly. And so I the first step. I always say that the first step starts with what I call the five books is stupid. Everybody's number may be a little different, but I found that if, and there's a specific, I like I, when I started trying to learn a subject, I would start, it would take me five books till I could learn enough to know enough to start talking to experts. And I'm not saying I know the subject. I mean, I just know enough to ask good questions. Right. You're That's you have to read five books before you I, were qualified. If, if okay. I came in cold and I always started with the most popular book you could possibly find, because you, the first thing you want to learn is what's the language of the subject? How do people talk about this? And you're not when most people try to learn stuff, they they work too hard at it is, is, is really the point. You if you understand sort of how the brain learns information and you understand how subjects themselves work, you can, you can shortcut things a little bit. So I always say start with the easiest, most popular book. The only goal is just pay attention to the language, right? Just pay attention to the language being used. If a term shows up more than five times and you don't know it, look it up. And every time you see it, just say the definition to yourself aloud. Start there. Second book is a little more, a uh, little more. So if the first book, let's say you want to learn, um, Something about intuition, right? You start by watching or reading the book Memento, right? Just so you can get a little bit of a, here's, here's how memory works, here's how the brain works, little basics is the language. Second book, maybe that's the Malcolm Gladwell blink level of a book. Popular, easy, you're going to get a little bit more of the science, a little bit more of the language, and you're going to start to get a historical narrative. That's the second thing you want to pay attention to. Why? Because the brain is a cause and effect machine. Our brain naturally tells stories and it's a, it's a pattern recognition system. So if you say, hey, this happened in 1800 and this happened in 1850 and this happened in 1900, that historical narrative becomes the overarching sort of, it's the big Christmas tree that you can start to hang the ornaments of the facts themselves on. You, you give the brain an architecture that it normally naturally relies on and, then, and you build up from there. So the five, the five not so easy steps starts with reading the, and it's just step one is read these five books, but it's until you get to book four or five, you're not reading anything hard, but the most important part about this process, and this is where um, it's a little different from how most people learn is the most important thing that you pay attention to are those emotional wow moments when you are naturally curious. Those are the only real notes you should be taking when you're learning a subject, you're following your own curiosity through a subject because it takes advantage of the brain's inherent learning machinery. When we get excited, when we get curious, we're getting a little bit of norepinephrine and a little bit of dopamine. What does this do? Well, we're suddenly paying more attention to the, to the subject at hand, but norepinephrine primes the brain, as you know, for learning. So if you're following your own emotional wows through the book, you're actually taking advantage of the brain's inherent learning software and you're going to learn faster. The trick there is you don't have to understand everything you read. That's not the point. 
Yes. You, if you, that's where people get screwed up, right? They get screwed up because they want to understand, oh, this was confusing to me. I got to go back. No, don't do that. That's not what you're trying to do. Your brain is a pattern recognition system. It will learn over time. Your job is to read from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. Understand what you understand and forgive yourself for not understanding the rest and trust that the learning is going to happen automatically because it does, right? One of the things that I think is really, really true is peak performers know it's always crawl, walk, run. Everybody else, they don't want to, most people are like, when they're faced with a subject, they're like, oh, I, don't, I don't really want to crawl. I don't want to walk. I'd like to start a jog. And they spend a lot of time looking for a shortcut. I think peak performers, I'm trying to get the shadow out of this thing. Where am I, <laughs> where am I going? I'm getting the afternoon sun in weird ways. Okay, there you go. I think I'm, that, that's there great. I, go. Um, uh, I think a lot of other people they come to challenges and they don't want to be. They so dislike being bad at things that they will spend a really long time looking for a way to like hack their way in and start in the middle. Or I think peak performers just come along. They're like, "Look, I know I'm going to be bad at this. I know I'm going to suck, and I know it's going to feel bad." Right? Learning. Our experience of learning on the inside is I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck. Oh, look, I don't suck anymore, right? Look at that. But that's because, I mean, right, you're taking stuff in consciously, you're passing it up to the subconscious, and we don't have, we don't get to tell the subconscious when it's going to figure shit out. We just get to stock it and know that sooner or later it will. And that is, I think, one of the secrets is not being so damn hard on yourself along the way and taking advantage of your natural inherent learning software and how the body is designed to learn. And of course, we're all designed to learn. I realized uh, back in the day that if I really wanted to be top of my field in uh, internet infrastructure uh, sort of things, I was going to have to know the very latest stuff. And there was just a huge fire hose of innovation happening. And I would teach a class every night after work at the University of California. So I'd finish the workday and I'd have one hour while I was eating dinner to go through all the trade journals to compose my class for two hours of lecture that night. Wow. And I was terrified. I mean, the first time I did this, I, I, I'm sure I screwed up. But within a year of doing that, four nights a week, I got to the point where I had trained myself to just absorb as much as I needed to, to be able to make diagrams, to make it teachable, right? To engage a, a classroom and all. And I still think to this day that that rapid learning training, it kind of beat out of me that, oh, no, I don't understand something. Like, well, do I know enough, right? And then the rest of it does soak in the, the way you're saying in a way that I can't really explain. And, and that's to this day why I can look at PubMed and I can read a paper and be like, this one's really detailed. And there's <laughs> four strange peptides I don't know about mentioned here, but that's okay. I'm still getting the gist of this paper. And eventually it just becomes easier and easier. Uh, so your your point there that, yeah, learning actually does suck because as you're learning, it requires failure and failure is generally painful for people. And um, as you get better at it, though, you fail less and all of a sudden it's not that hard anymore. I, I love it that you're just open about it instead of this sort of like, oh, it's going to well, be happy, happy, joy, joy all the time. I always I always say with a couple like the funny thing about peak performance of impossible goals, let's it takes the exact same amount of energy to be the best dry cleaner in Cleveland, Ohio, as it does to say, open lock the space frontier, right? I 
Peter Diamandis is one of my closest friends, and that's essentially Peter's contribution, right? He he helped unlock the space frontier, and when he dreamed up this idea, it was a total impossible. It was crazy. Everybody thought he was yeah. out of his mind, and you know, suddenly it wasn't. And I watched the whole thing up close. You know what I mean? Like I can tell you, it's beautiful. There's only 24 hours in a day. It's you know, what does it take to unlock the space frontier? What did Peter do? He woke up, typed into his computer, talked on the phone, talked on the phone, talked on his phone, went to a meeting, typed on his computer, had lunch, went to the gym, went to the bathroom, right? I mean, does sound familiar? Of course, <laughs> I mean, by the way, we're, we, uh, and, and how much, how often did he do this? For about 16 hours a day. Why? Because we know you need seven to eight hours of sleep a night. That's gonna, that's what expertise takes. If you want to be best in the world at whatever it is you're going to do, that's what you're going to give. That's, and that's because that's basically all you can get, right? And it's going to be the mm -hmm. same. That, that variable's not going to not gonna change. The size of the vision really, really matters, but the actual work itself, it's the same. And I always say, if you've somehow managed to get to adulthood, you already have a pretty good idea of it's not going to get any shittier. Right. You know, like you've already experienced the shittiest it's going to be because we have um, things known as emotional set points. You have the best you're going to feel, the worst you're going to feel. Your life is going to take place in the middle of that. Now, there are things death of a child and chronic unemployment can push you lower on the scale. That is for sure. But excluding those things, what the research shows is, no, you've pretty much already experienced it. And that's what people I don't think get about these like really high, hard goals, about setting really big goals. It's not going to get any harder just because the goal is harder. You've already experienced the, the, the difficulty of life. Uh, man, so, so well said. And you're going to put one foot in front of the other. It's a question of what direction you're, you're going in while you do it. Totally. And you talk about creativity in The Art of Impossible. And you say there's seven ways to hack creativity. What is your favorite one of those seven ways? So it's interesting. I, when I break down creativity, the creativity is tricky, right? People have been trying to train up creativity for a really long time, and we're really bad at it. And we're bad at it because like, we were bad at a lot of the like, performance hacking stuff in a lot of the 20th century because we were coming in through psychology. Psychology is awesome, but it's a metaphor neurobiology is mechanism. And if you get down to the neurobiology, you find out, you know, I'll give you one of my favorite, the simplest, simplest things. If you want to increase creativity, um, the simplest way to do it is uh, a good mood or peripheral vision. Both of those things, and they're really weird, but so the anterior cingulate cortex is the part of your brain that helps us make um, far-flung connections between ideas. And the anterior cingulate cortex has a couple of governors on it. The amount of anxiety in your system, specifically norepinephrine and cortisol, the more anxious we are, the more logical and linear the ACC will, have, will be. The reason is, is really simple. When we're faced with a crisis, the brain doesn't want to make millions of choices. It doesn't want to be creative. It wants simple solutions. The classic example is extreme stress, fight or flight or freeze are the only three options. What people don't realize is that same system, the spectrum, like we were talking about earlier, everything's a spectrum. And the more anxiety in your system, the fewer choices you can make, right? The fewer options you're going to get, 
which is why one of the fastest sort of <clears throat> optimism is so foundational for creativity, right? Optimism, being in a good mood. But interestingly, the quickest way to sort of hack that, you asked for a fast way to sort of hack that. Um, and this is, uh, by the way, not my work. This is uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's at Stanford. I'm sure you've met him along he's the way. He's been on the show, yeah, he's great. Yeah, I figured. He's great. So we, we do some work with, with with Andrew, and this is his work. But when uh, <clears throat> when we um, utilize our peripheral vision, because anxiety focus is very tight vi linear vision, right? When we use our peripheral vision and look out things out of the side of our eyes, or look at very wide vistas. So my office, my windows face mountain ranges for this very reason. Whenever I'm stuck, I look yep. up out at the mountain ranges. Why? Because it pulls my vision into my peripheral. It calms me down because my brain goes, oh, look, you're looking out of the corner of your eyes. You must not be in a dangerous situation. And it calms you down and it actually amplifies creativity. Um, <clears throat> that's why I mean why mechanism is so useful. When you get, when you get down to sort of like that foundational level, you start, you start saying, oh, this is how this stuff works at a, at a state level rather than a skill level. I haven't ever talked about this, I, I don't think. Um, I've talked about how I, I did a bunch of vision training uh, in order to, to change my eyes because I had all kinds of vision problems like visual processing that I didn't even know about. But I went through peripheral vision training exercises. Oh, I didn't, and, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Oh yeah, totally. I was maybe around 30 when I did this, uh, but I found out that my left eye would actually turn off my visual input because my brain had a hard time lining up my vision. It's surprisingly common amongst people who learn to read when they're 18 months old, like I did. Uh, you can teach oh. kids to read way before they probably should, so I didn't crawl enough because I was reading. But um, all sorts of things happened there, and it was incredibly difficult. I was exhausted when I learned to see out of my peripheral vision because I was walking around the entire time in tunnel vision. I didn't even know it. Right. So once I expanded that, it took about a year or two, I think, for my brain to restructure itself to be able to see the periphery. And it did improve my performance, but it was work. Let me ask you a question. Did it calm you down? Did you, did you notice did. an impact on mood? That's interesting. Yeah. That's really wild. It, um, it did calm me down. And as a side effect, I, I was 2060 or 2080 and, and I had astigmatism in one eye. And at the end of about, it was either three or six months of doing an hour a week of intense work with a developmental optim or developmental ophthalmologist. Ophthalmologist. Yeah. And uh, my vision went back. It was 2015 in both eyes and it stayed ever since. And I got rid of the stigmatism, but that peripheral stuff, I would you know, combine it with breathing exercises, but I do an hour of training and I'd have to sleep for like four hours after I did that. I was just, just destroyed mentally because it was so much work. But I think it really did uh, calm things down and just allow a, a greater perception of the world. So it, it's really cool as a creativity hack. Okay, looking at Vistas, definitely heard about that, but I've never heard anyone connect that. And you just made me think, oh, yeah, I, I actually did a bunch of work there without necessarily yeah, knowing why, other so, than some but, guy told me uh, to. <laughs> um. Well, all right. So I, I'm going to keep focusing on my peripheral vision. And I also, I recognize what a luxury having a Vista view is. And I will say simply, if you have the opportunity to have a bigger monitor, I'm looking at mm. you on a 45 inch monitor that's set four feet back from my desk that has a Vista on it. 
So even if I'm not looking out the window at Salt Spring Island, which is it's awesome, I can do that. But in a lot of places, you just can't do that. Yeah. Having your monitor further away and bigger, I think has a very meaningful neurological impact on people. Oh, that's any, interesting. Any evidence you've seen? Yeah, I don't, I, I, that's interesting. I'm not an optimist, or I'm not, I don't work directly on the visual system. That's super interesting though. And I, and I, and it would make sense to me. Um, I, and, the, I mean, the, the question, the, I guess the question I, what I wonder is with like big screen televisions, like at what point does the brain go, oh, this is a Vista? Or is it if I'm looking at, a, you know, a Jimmy Chin photograph of, of you know, El Capitan or something like a, a really majestic one, if it, even if it's small, I don't know if that has the same effect either. This is a question I don't know either. It, it might. I, I think that there's there's something about, you know, those those big paintings on a wall or, you know, a photograph, but if it's super small, it might not. Even a photo of the sun surprisingly can have an effect on your circadian about just a picture of the sun without light behind oh i didn't it. know that that's yeah it's it's so crazy the way the eyes work but linking them into into creativity directly is really cool work and i like that part of the book now i want to hear at least one or two of your impossible stories like the time you flew a russian fighter jet tell me about that okay so you're going to totally appreciate this this is a slightly longer story um because i gotta i gotta start a little earlier so you have to know that I, when I started my career and I was originally studying flow, it was not entirely clear where the line between flow and other altered states of consciousness were. And that one of the things that was very commonly reported in flow states were out-of-body experiences. So yeah. I was in, in the 19, late 1990s, early 2000s, I was doing a lot of work on the neurobiology, what goes on in the brain when people have so-called mystical experiences. Okay, so it turns out the original major study, first giant study ever done on out-of-body and near-death experiences was done by the U.S. Air Force. The reason was the stealth fighters were introduced. Pilots kept flying themselves into G-lock, gravity-induced loss of consciousness. Too much G-force pulls the blood out of your head. And, you, and they were crashing billion-dollar airplanes, right, over yep. and over and over again. This was a problem. So a guy named James Winery, got called in as a physiologist who's working in Texas. And what he did is he spun in a centrifuge over a thousand Air Force pilots into G-lock. And what he started to notice is right before G-lock, a surprising amount of them started reporting out-of-body experiences. And if he kept spinning them, that out-of-body experience started to turn into all the classic symptoms of a near-death experience, including like moving down a long dark tunnel towards a, there were, he thought there were physiological reasons for this, and but it was it was really it was one of the things that he had worked on, right? And I had reported it on this uh, around the same time. So this is all backstory. Friend of mine is a publicist, and you know, as a journalist, you cultivate weird publicists because yeah. they're, they're right they're the gateway into like crazy stories. This guy was one of those guys. Calls me up. He had the Stolichnaya account. Stolichnaya had so. Cold War happened. Cold War, uh, you know, the Berlin Wall comes down, Cold War ends, and Russia's essentially bankrupt. So what do they do? They start selling off their old planes from the military. Stoli buys a bunch of MiGs, including a MiG trainer. And they bring them to America. And my phone rings, and my buddy says, hey, do you want to go fly a MiG? Flying a MiG. And I was like, well, of course I want to go fly a yeah. MiG. Dumb, dumb question. So I go to the airfield. 
and it's a MIG trainer. So that means the, the, the trainee sits in the front and the pilots, there's a pilot, another spot for a pilot behind you. So I'm sitting, like they put me in the thing and the pilot walks up and he starts telling me how to fly the plane. He's like, well, here's your rudder and here are your pedal. And I'm like, he's going through it and, and I'm like, dude, you know, I like, I don't know how to fly a plane, man. Like you can tell me how it works and that that's great and neat. But like, you do realize I've never flown a plane before. He's like, oh yeah, yeah. This is just in case something goes terribly wrong. And I was like, okay, whatever. So he takes off for a hundred feet off the deck and he's like, okay, man, you got the stick. And I was like, what do you mean? I've got the stick. He's like, you've got the stick. And I was like, really? He's like, there's probably nothing you can do to this airplane that I can't recover us from. And I'm like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, no, I, I, I think, I think I got you. And I was like, can I fly your MIG into G-Lock? Because there's this theory in neuroscience <laughs> that if I fly it into G-Lock, I'm going to have a near-death experience. And I want to see if that's real. And he's like, man, I don't know if you want to do that, but give it a go. And so I start barrel rolling the plane and barrel rolling the plane and barrel. And it doesn't, I'm not like, I, it turns out I have a massive tolerance for G-forces. And nothing. finally, he's like, well, why don't you try looping it? And I was like, okay, here's wow. how you loop a MIG. You go up to 11,000 feet, you point the nose at the ground, and then you push out the stick and fly at the ground as hard and as fast as you can. And then when you think you're about to die, you yank back on the stick with everything you've got, and the plane will loop. And wow. as we were coming up over the loop, I lost consciousness and flew myself into G-lock. And yes, it is exactly like you're going down a long, dark tunnel because <laughs> the optical nerve is the deepest nerve in the brain. So it's the last thing to get extinguished. So it looks like, remember those old televisions where you would turn them off and it would go down mm -hmm. that single dot? That's what it looks like right before you lose consciousness. And um, what they didn't tell me is that G-forces are actually incredibly rough on the body at high yeah. G-forces. So I pulled about nine Gs over that course of that flight. I was sick for a about five weeks. I mean, violently sick for about five weeks. Like the worst flu. I couldn't get out of bed for about four days after that. Like I got sort of was driving home. I was driving home from Liverpool to San Francisco, which is where I was living at the time. And I sort of got halfway to San Francisco. And I was like, God, I feel really, I mean, I felt nauseous from the flying, but I was like, this is getting worse and not better. What the hell just happened to me? Yeah, I, I didn't. I learned that, that astronauts much get the, sick. The equivalent of rhabdo. Uh, just about like yeah. the amount of damage protein in your body floating around inflammation everywhere yeah it, it takes a while to clean that out yeah i didn't know but i did get to fly a mig fighter jet into g-lock and i can tell you that it does produce very i didn't have an out-of-body experience but i did have the classic near-death experience symptoms and i found that really interesting it it sounds a lot like what happens if you have a low blood pressure uh, which i've had for a long time i talked about uh, pots uh, with nick Foles. Uh, so there, there's been a few times where I'm like, oh, my blood pressure is going down. And you sort of feel like the sides and it's just oh, not enough wow. blood in the brain. Yeah. Oh, no, that's interesting. Okay. I managed to hack that. So it's not a, not a factor in my life anymore, but I've, I've definitely know that feeling. And uh, I never even had to, uh, never even had to, to get in a jet yeah, to do it. You, 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 didn't to do have to you didn't have to fly a MIG to do it. <laughs> I just like the fact that I flew a MIG into G-Lock to run a random neuroscience experiment. That's I, I just, think that's epic. You know what I mean? Oh, I love <laughs> I, that. And I mean, you, you've done so many things that people would say are impossible. And I, I, I think it's kind of a cool backstory for the art of impossible because you're saying, look, I, I have done all these things. And, and one of them is being a world-class writer 
And you know, working with all the people you're working with on neuroscience and all that stuff, that in and of itself, a lot of people say, oh, that's impossible. That's never going to happen. People don't even know what flow is. So I, I think you're sort of living evidence that you can do a lot of stuff that most people don't think is is real. And you sort of live in that world. And and you've, you've done a good job of being an example and then writing the book. Instead I got to, you know, David, I got to say, I mean, this quest started for me in the 1990s, right? I became a journalist and I was covering action sports. And the, and the thing you got to remember about action sports in the early 1990s, where I was actually in the 1990s, we called it the era of impossible, right? More things that were never going to be done um, were, I mean, they, they were being done. They were being iterated upon. It was again and again and again and again and again. And the limits of human performance was going up and up and up. That was the view from the outside. Oh my God, look at these people doing these impossible things on waves or on skis or on surf. The view from the inside was very weird because it's a, it's a totally different thing when it's, you know, I was living in these communities. I wasn't just reporting on them. I was living at Squaw Valley. These were my friends. And it like, when you go drinking with a dude on Friday night and you know, you're just two drunk 23 year olds in a bar, and then you wake up the next day and your friend goes out and does something that for all of recorded history has never been done and nobody actually thought was going to be ever done, it's a totally different level of like, well, what the hell is going on? Because it's not like some figure on a screen. It's the dude sitting next to you at the bar. And the other thing about these action adventure sport athletes in the 1990s, back then, this was not mainstream activities. These were like rowdy, irreverent, punk rock people with almost everybody I knew, they had terrible childhoods. They came from broken homes, right? Very, very, very bad upbringings. They had very little education. They had no money. There was a tremendous amount of alcohol, a tremendous amount of drugs. If I were to tell you about this combination, okay, you got a bunch of people, they got no money, they got no education, there's lots of drugs, there's lots of alcohol, and by the way, they're taking lots of risks all the time. You're not going to say that's a, that that's a combination that puts people in the grave or in jail as a general rule. It's not a mm-hmm. combination that routinely leads to kind of the redefinition of what is possible for the human species. And that's what was happening over and over and over again. So when I came into this question, I was a lot more grounded, maybe, because like I was well aware, like it wasn't an image on a screen of, oh, here's this faraway thing doing the impossible, or even when I, w- I moved into science and technology and I was covering like those innovators returning sci-fi ideas into sci-fi technology, right? And I was in the room when a lot of that stuff was happening. These are very flawed, broken, normal people. I always say that I have spent my life studying extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. And yet I have met almost no one who started out extraordinary. They just start out like you and me. And it's just about getting your biology to work for you rather than against you because there's no other tool set to work with. There's no fantasy. There's no, it's, 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 this is what it is. And there's, that's why, you know, one of the things that keeps happening with Art of Impossible, you probably saw, you probably had this experience um, as well. Peak performers read and they go, oh yeah, I'm doing like 60% of this stuff. I didn't know there was an additional 40% and I didn't know it was all a system or it was all designed to work together. But you, we, if you're at the top of any game, this is your toolkit. Of course, you've been using these things. Um, what the, and, and, and of course, there are great books, individual books, right? Like 
there's great books on focus or gratitude or grit or mindfulness or flow. And I, you know, I've written some of those books. What's different now is that, oh, wow, we have the whole sequence. We have the whole series and we know how they work together, right? That, that I think is what's different about this book. And, but I think when people performers read it, they're like, oh yeah, that's really familiar. That's really familiar. That of course it is, right? It has yeah. to be, right? I definitely got you, that sense. Like, yeah. oh, that makes sense. You just explain something that I, you know, it works, but you don't know why. And, and you've yeah. got the why in it. Exactly. Well, uh, Stephen, thanks for uh, an awesome interview and an awesome book. The book is called The Art of Impossible. And guys, I want you to order this book and read it because it's worth your time to read it. And at the same time, if you don't already have Fast This Way, order it at the same time. And there's a secret for this. We're going to train Amazon's AI algorithms so that they'll say people who read this book also read this book because I want people to read either book to read really good books. And it's kind of funny. It only takes a few of those in order to make it happen. I promise you both of those books are more than worth your time. The ROI on them for you is exceptionally high. Stephen's an epic, epic writer, and he's really done his work on this book. And it's just, it's worth your time. Have a beautiful day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.